The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Amen. So uh, we're kind of, this was supposed to be a a one-off week, meaning we're between series. We had just rolled off of our Church Unity series, and we're heading into a series we're calling Summer at Story City. Uh, And I was was tasked to do this because Matt had to be somewhere else to preach. And as I was prepping this week, it became clear to me that the Lord had something else. Uh, The text that he, in his sovereignty, drew my heart to just to pick was Ephesians 4. And as I was studying Ephesians 4, it became clear to me that this was actually a text on church unity. And so I just made the call. I called Matt, I called Josh, and I said, is it okay if we just do one more week? And and I gotta be honest, as I settled into preaching on unity uh, again, my heart started wrestling with some things. And, And can I just confess to you, in my flesh... I feel like there might be some people in this room and I, I fear maybe even opening this up again because I feel like maybe there's this, there's an emotional exhaustion in us around this conversation of like church unity is a hard conversation. Really, we're gonna do another week of this again. And a part of me wanna just pull back and say, no, but God kept pushing me forward. He said, this is where I have our church right now. Um, as I was sitting and preparing this morning, I always go to a coffee shop uh, the last morning to look over my notes and a pastor sat down, a pastor friend of mine who's no longer in ministry. And he sat down beside me and he was just sharing his journey and where he's at in life. And it just struck me, the church has an enemy. The church has an enemy that wants to divide and destroy and kill our churches. And I've been a minister in LA for five years now as a minister in Chicago for three and a half years before that. And I've just seen, this is a hard place to do ministry. This is a hard context for things to take root and grow. This is a hard place for a church to sustain and last. This is a hard place for pastors to stay and last. This is a hard context for ministry and building a church in Los Angeles is hard and it is a work that only God can do. And so it just highlighted to me this fact that if we are going to be a sustainable church in Los Angeles that really does ministry for the long term, we have to be a unified church. We have to figure out what that looks like. We have to figure out as leaders what it looks like for us to walk with you in love and grace and mercy. And you have to walk together as a body in love and unity with one another. And for that, we need the word of God and we need instruction and we need tools in our tool belt for how to be unified. And so with that, I say another week of church unity and let's lean into it because there's much at stake. Did you know, um, we're in Ephesians 4 this morning, we'll get to the text, but a a little ways down in Ephesians 4, 26, the apostle Paul writes, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Are you familiar with that verse? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He says, in your anger, do not sin. So there's a, a healthy way to be angry. But he says, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. And this is what he says after that. And so give the devil a foothold. Meaning this, when we allow anger and resentment and bitterness to fester in our hearts, to simmer in the crock pot, eventually to be served up with a side dish of gossip and envy and contentiousness, that what we do is in our lives and in the life of our church, we actually give the enemy a foothold to crawl in. And in John 8, we read that the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy and that he is a father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. So when Satan speaks, the language he speaks, I speak English, it's the only language I know. When I speak, it's English. When Satan speaks, it's lies. 
And it's his tool to divide and destroy our church. And he wants us to believe lies about ourselves. He wants us to believe lies about others. He wants to plant seeds of doubt and confusion in our lives so that he can divide, dissect, and destroy the church. Why? Because the church is the greatest threat to him. And here's why. Because God loves the church. God loves his church. He died for his church. He loved it so much. The unified church is God's obsession. It is the very thing Jesus came and died for. The gospel message that Christ loves his church always will lead us to church unity when we set our hearts upon it. God loves the church so much. And so it's important that we learn what this unity looks like. It's why we take a moment as pastors and as a church to look at this. So I wanna ask this question, why does God care so much about the church and why is God so invested in unity? What, what is God's purpose for his church? Let's put it that way. What is it that God is trying to accomplish in his church? Like we have all seen all sorts of different agendas in the church. If you've bounced in and out of church your whole life, if you stayed in the church, all sorts of people have different agendas for the church, but what is God's agenda? What is God trying to accomplish through his church? What is he after? Uh, before we get to Ephesians 4, turn with me to Ephesians 3 quickly. And uh, Ephesians 3 verse 10 is gonna give us a clue into what it is God is after in his church. And, and here the apostle Paul writes, starting in Ephesians 3 verse seven, he says this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So here's what Paul just said right here. Um, when you hear that word Gentiles, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that basically means anybody who's not a Jew from the nation of Israel and believes and is gonna come to believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying up till now, up till I'm writing this, up until the time of Jesus, like there was the nation of Israel and they were the stewards of the promises and covenants of God. But now Christ has come and opened the doorway and this mystery has been hidden that now Christ is going to make a doorway open for all people to come to the knowledge of God, all people to be made one, all people in every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every affinity group, every socioeconomic status, every uh, disposition and personality type, they're all through the message of Jesus Christ able to be unified and made one. Anyone, anywhere, all generations can be unified. And here's how, through this administration God has given me. And what is that administration? To preach the gospel, which is the good news that you're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and no righteousness of your own. So the administration Christ has is to preach the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's available to everyone and the fruit that it produces is always unity. He continues, verse, verse 10, his intent. Okay, so here it is. God, what's your intent? Was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here is again what Paul just said. God's plan to showcase his manifold wisdom, meaning his multifaceted wisdom, his great wisdom, the entirety of his vastness of all the wisdom of the eternal God, his plan for how to do that is the church. 
the church. Can we just be honest for a moment? That seems like a really bad plan. Like you've been in the church, maybe. The church is a mess. Like there's all sorts of fallen leaders right now. There's all sorts of stuff going on. There's division and contention. Churches are splitting. Churches are dying. What is going on? How can this be your plan, God? It seems like a bad plan to me, but it's the plan. Here's what God is saying. My gospel takes people with no reason to belong together, with every reason to divide, a list, a laundry list, hundreds of bullet points long of reasons this church should not be unified. And it takes it and it crosses all of those things out and replaces it with one glorious truth that redefines the primary identity of human beings. Salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ becomes the single most important thing about you and it unites people that would otherwise be divided. And this is what God seems to think. He seems to believe that when he does this, it's such an incredible miracle that it's the best possible way that he could actually showcase his godness. That it's the primary way that he wants to show off. And what this text says to the authorities in heaven, meaning to angels and demons, like they're longing to understand God's holiness, his glory. And he's saying the primary way you get to look into this is look at my church. Look what I've done. Look who I've created one people. Look how I've made them one. It's how God wants to show off. And so this is why this is so important. The power of the gospel is to create unity. And unity in the church is ultimately about one thing, God's glory. Unity in the church is primarily about God's glory. It's how God shows off who he is. It's how the watching world looks in and goes, there's something different going on there. This is echoing all throughout scripture. Verses like, they will, you, they will know who you're my disciples by their love for one another. That's talking about in the church, the watching world. How are they gonna know that we belong to Jesus? By looking inside the walls of this church at how we live out in our communities. And they say, I don't get it. They're different different races, different income levels, different interests, different, everything's different, but they are united in love. How is this working? And the answer is our identity is not in those things anymore. Our identity is in the reality that we were nothing and Christ called us in, adopted us, loved us and made us his own. So we're saved by grace and that allows us to be gracious to one another, to live this out in a unique and powerful way in a very, very, very divided world. And so as we get into chapter four this morning of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter one, one, two, and three are very doctrinal. They're um, Paul unfolding the gospel for this church in Ephesus saying uh, in chapter two, he writes, you're saved by grace through faith. This is not the work of you. This is no work of your own. So there's no boasting. So take this new identity God's given to you and live out of it. So this is in chapter four, he's gonna move out of, um, formal head knowledge. And he's gonna make a, a journey down to heart knowledge and hand knowledge. He's gonna say, this is who you are. This is what you know. This is what Christ has done through the gospel. Now this is what you do. This is how you live in light of that. So he's moving from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. He's moving from head and heart to hands. He's saying, this is what you do. And in Ephesians 4 verse one, Paul writes this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So Paul is a prisoner, literally in this moment. Um, he's in jail for preaching the gospel. 
and he shows that his value system is similar to God because he's writing from prison and he, sa- he doesn't say, send books, I'm bored. He doesn't say, does anyone have a Netflix login I can borrow? He doesn't say, send food or blankets, it's cold in here. He's not concerned with his physical well-being. He's concerned with the church's well-being and unity. He's saying, live worthy of the calling you have received. Worthy of the calling you have received. Calling is a word that we love. I love here in Los Angeles and in 2019. We're, we love to think about our calling. We, we love it. Um, we love to think about our disposition. What's our Enneagram number? What's my uh, Myers-Briggs? Am I a Labrador retriever or an otter or a fire ant? Like, what, what's my calling? What do I have to give the world when I look inside of myself? What do I have to give to the world around me? What's my calling? Well, here's what Paul is saying. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the primary calling, the primary identifier on your life is no longer four wing five on the Enneagram. It's no longer um, uh, INFP or ESTJ or what your strengths finders are. Your primary identifier, your primary calling now is a calling into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's, That's your calling. That's the calling you have to live from. That's the calling you live out of. That is who you are. That is what is most important about you. You are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ and he has adopted you into his family. And so that's the identity we focus on living out. That's the identity that Paul is encouraging this church to live out. But how, Paul? How do we live this calling out? How do we live worthy of this calling that we freely received? Verse two, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. This is interesting um, that here in Ephesians, and there's other places in the scriptures where Paul goes the other direction, but here in Ephesians, Paul says, how do you live your calling out? It has nothing to do with personal, um, individualistic holiness. It has everything to do with corporate holiness. Like the way that you live out your calling. It, see, we're, we're children of the enlightenment. We're individualistic people. In, in 10 years of pastoring, I have never had one person come to me for counseling under the weight of sin, looking for help, looking for comfort, looking for advice from, man, I'm just struggling with humility. Uh, pastor, I'm really, uh, I'm struggling with patience. I need your help walking through this. Never had that happen. Why? Because the sins, the, the ethos we live under is individualistic. So even our consciences, the, thing we feel, the things we feel weight around have all to do with private stuff like pastor, there's this sin I keep going back to when I'm alone and I can't get away from it. I do go a week and I'm back. Help me, help me. It's all in secret. It's all private. But Paul's saying, actually our consciences, the knob needs to be turned up on corporate holiness on how we're interacting with one another, on how we're responding to one another, on the kind of lifestyle we have in community, in the church. He's saying, it's not about individualistic holiness. Yes, that's important, yes and amen. But here he says, corporate holiness is the primary way you live out the calling you've received, that you live worthy of what Christ has called you to be. It's through corporate holiness. So I just, I just want to press on this for a minute. If you or I, because we've all been guilty of this at times, myself included, if you're nailing it in your quiet time, like you were up at 4 a.m. this morning memorizing Deuteronomy, you almost got the whole book down. <laughs> if you are crushing the Christian meme game on Facebook, 
with those cool ones with the fancy script. Like, that's great. If, if you could sing along to the top 40 on Caleb like a boss. If, if you can quote scripture to your friends in conversation, just nailing the scripture. Good, amen, yes. But what Paul wants us to see is if we've got that kind of thing going on in our life, but we're living with constant unresolved resentment, if we can't control this little piece of flesh in our mouth called the tongue and the natural gravity of our conversation, it's constantly about other people in ways that we wouldn't talk about them if they were in the room. Paul wants us to see there's a disconnect. That 18 inch journey from head to heart hasn't happened because the way that love for Jesus and gospel manifests itself always reveals itself in how we are in community. That's the primary manifestation here. How am I talking about others? How am I thinking of others? How am I responding to others? Humility, gentleness, patience are massively important indicators of if the gospel is really taking root or if we're just doing this theologizing game where we just wanna make sure we can get the answers right in small group. Have we let it go from here to hear? Have we been broken by the weight of our own sin that would lead us to have grace and patience and mercy towards the sin of others? Are we humble people? Are we gentle people? Are we patient people? Like I said, I know this is tough. I feel it too. I wasn't particularly excited to preach this morning on this. <laughs> Let me give us a couple diagno- diagnostic questions here. Some, uh, like, you know, when your car goes bad, you, you, the check engine light comes on. Maybe this could be a check engine light for us on a few of these. Do I find it easy or difficult to rejoice in the success of others? Especially when it's in an area I long for success in. Uh, There's a quote by C.S. Lewis on this, uh, on, on this, and he says, God wants to bring men into a state of mind in which they could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact that they made it without being any more, glad at have done it, any more glad at having done it than they would be if it was done by another person. Like the state of mind God wants us to pull us into is this idea that someone else could succeed in the very area we wanna succeed in and we can rejoice for them the same way we would rejoice if we did it ourselves. Are you able to rejoice at the successes of others? It's a sign of humility if you are. When I enter a room of people, do I naturally focus on how others are treating me or am I naturally seeking opportunities to encourage others? I'm an introvert, I'm an awkward person. I I do okay on stage, but as soon as I get into the lobby, I'm hiding. And, uh, And so often my disposition when I walk into a room is to be very focused on self. How are others perceiving me? How are others treating me? Um, How are others looking at me? How how am I coming across? But the disposition God would want us to pull us into when we walk into a room is to identify the needs of others. Maybe there's someone else that's feeling that way. Maybe there's someone else in the room that's feeling awkward or unwelcomed or unwanted or fearful. Can I find a way to comfort them? Can I find a way to encourage them? Can I find a way to pull them aside and just speak life into them? That's the disposition of humility. Another one, am I easily offended? Am I easily offended? A person's wisdom yields patience and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, 11. 
Am I prone to dwell on position, status, or titles? Do I need recognition to serve others with joy for long periods of time? And notice here that Paul encourages believers in verse two. He says, bear with one another in love. I I was amazed as I read this, I'm like, bearing with one another in love. That sounds a little too honest. Like I have to bear with others. So I looked up in the Greek and guess what it means? It means bear with one another in love. (laughs) Actually, it gets worse than that. If you really want to dissect the Greek word, sometimes it's literally used to, the translation of that word is suffer one another. Suffer one another in love. Endure one another in love. I actually really like that. I'm thankful for that because that corresponds with reality for me a lot of the time. Like there are people that are just hard and what does godly unity and community look? It looks like suffering and enduring. It looks like dealing with that in love, not in passive, passive, aggressive resentment, but in love. My daughter, Gracelyn, we have a four and a half hour drive uh, to Modesto, California, where we're from. And when we get in the car every time, she gets her strapped into her car seat. She has a little tablet that she likes to play. Um, and she's pumped for like the first two hours of the trip. She's like, we're going to Nani and Poppy's house, the open road, I'm feeling it. I got my candy, I got my tablet. That lasts for about two hours. And then after about two hours, I'm relatively confident that if a 2009 Honda Civic had an eject button, she would push it. (laughs) Like she is over the ride every 15 minutes. Are we there yet? Then every six minutes, are we there yet? No, we're not there yet, baby. What was exciting and wonderful turns into just endurance. Like I'm watching my little girl squirming in her jet fighter seat that they've made for her to sit in. And she's just like, get me out of this thing. Can I just say in five years here at Story City, I've seen the same thing happen communally here. People come to our church for the first couple months. This is awesome. I found a new community. Everything's great. I got my metaphorical tablet and the open road in front of me. What a great place. Then things get real. We realize that there's sin in every community because we're all sinners, including the pastors in any church and that Jesus Christ is the only perfect person. And things get hard. And I have watched people pull the eject. I've just watched it happen. It just gets hard. So they go find somewhere else to do church. Guess what? There's sinners there too. Choose a body, commit to it, endure, forgive, learn these things that Jesus Christ modeled for us at the cross. What we preached on two weeks ago, that Christ models humility by becoming nothing. He endured on our behalf and showed us how to endure, bear with one another in love, suffer one another in love. Let's do this, come on. We're going there because for the glory of God, because this is how he's gonna make his glory known. Here's what we need to see, Uh, verse three. Thankfully, it's not all up to us. In verse three, Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The unity we share in the church is the unity produced by and sustained by the Holy Spirit of God. In the church, we are united in the gospel through the word by the power of the spirit. All born again believers in Jesus Christ are filled with the same Holy Spirit. The same spirit that's working in me right now as I preach God's word is the one that's working in you as you live your Christian faith that we're filled with the same spirit. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the church. 
the promised one that Jesus said was coming after his ascension finally falls on the church and all sorts of miraculous things start happening. And we're so prone to think about this, like tongues of fire, the church growing in thousands. But what we forget is one of the true fruits of the miraculousness of the spirit falling on the church in Acts 2 is unity being produced among ununified people, the church growing in number, living in community. Acts chapter four would literally tell us that they're living with all things in common so much to the point that no one had need. See, where the spirit is thriving, there is unity. And it's a miraculous fruit of the Holy Spirit working. Unity comes through the spirit of God. One way we make an effort to maintain this bond, this bond of peace through the spirit, is by maintaining an awareness and sensitivity to how the Holy Spirit is at work in me. And hear this, how the Holy Spirit is at work in other people. Um, When I fail to have a reverence, a genuine awareness and awe at the reality that the believers in my life are filled with the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is working in them in the same way he's worked in me through hard seasons of life to sanctify, to teach them love, to change their hearts, to change their dispositions. You know what that does? That gives me an incredible amount of patience with people because I recognize God's work in me has been hard at times. It's taken time to really take root. It's taken time for me to get there. And so guess what? I can be patient with others as I watch them wrestling with God too. I can trust that the Holy Spirit is getting them where he needs to go because he's promised us in Philippians 1.6 that he'll complete the work he started. But when I forget that that Holy Spirit is working other people, guess what's left to do? And guess what my tendency is to do? When I forget that the Holy Spirit that fills me is at work in other people, I tend to try to play the Holy Spirit. I tend to go, I know what they need. I got a word for somebody. Now that's fine and there's a place for that, but hear me. If you're never having reverence, for the reality that sometimes people just need time. They need patience. You force truth sometimes down their throat in ways that actually stifle the work the Holy Spirit is trying to do. You force truth down their mouth that they're not ready for in a way that actually ends up uprooting the patient, shepherding work that the Holy Spirit of God is doing in their life over a course of years. And so we need to learn to be patient with one another. Now there's a time when God says, speak. But I think more often than that, God says, pray. Pray for them, love them. And when I pray, when I intercede for other people, all of a sudden, God gives me his heart, his wisdom, his love to speak in his timing and in his way, if at all. We don't have to be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives because the unity of the Holy Spirit and the bond of peace is in both of us. So we pray for his heart in this. Verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This could be a sermon series, literally, this two verses. But what Paul is doing here is he's literally giving the Ephesian church and he's giving us the fire, the warmth of the Christian faith that we are all drawn to in the cold that holds us together. Like these realities are the things that we huddle around searching for warmth in a cold and divided world that keep us united, that keep us from falling apart, that keep us from division. These are the unifiers of the Christian faith. One body, the church, 
the people of God with Christ as the head. One spirit, the Holy Spirit, one hope. Ephesians 1.18 says, our hope is the riches of his glorious inheritance. One Lord, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, crucified, raised to life, ascended to the Father in glory and coming again. One faith, faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the justification of all sinners before God. One baptism, the sacrament through which we enter into the one body, the church, and declare outwardly the inward reality of faith in Jesus. And one God, one Father of all, who is over all as an authority, through all as a source, and in all as a spirit. These are the unifiers. These are the miraculous realities and the beautiful realities that hold us together as a church. These are essentials. These are the closed-handed issues. These are what hold the church together. And Paul continues in verse seven. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, there's a lot there, but I wanna try to unfold just a few things that Paul just did there and then pull out one implication for us and we'll land the plane this morning. Um, In verse seven, Paul says, to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So he's saying, we are unified, but we're not uniform. We've covered that. We all have unique gifts. This is why it says, verse eight, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. That verse is actually quoting Psalm 68, 18. And in that verse, David, after defeating the, uh, the Philistine army in 2 Samuel chapter 6, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the glory of the Lord dwelt. He's bringing it up into Jerusalem. And David writes, as he's doing this, he led many captives and he gave gifts to people. And literally what this means, in this time, there was a custom where David had just defeated the Philistine army and this army would have been defeated. They were David's captives. And so as they led the ark up to where it belongs in Jerusalem, he literally would have been parading through the streets, the captives, the captive Philistine army, showing what his glory has done. And as he's parading his foes as captives, he's also giving out all their stuff to his people. He's just like, we won this, take some. Who wants some stuff? I got all the Philistine stuff and I've got them captive. And he's drawing a parallel. He's saying in the ascension of Christ, after Christ died for our sins, rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven, he ascended back into heaven with authority, with our captives beneath his feet. He paraded them before us. And our enemies were sin, death, and Satan. They were forever defeated. And so as Christ is ascending, he's parading our enemies beneath his feet saying they're defeated and he's giving gifts to his people. He's handing gifts to his people saying, I love you. And here's a gift. I've uniquely wired you. And here's what this means. If you're in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has uniquely wired you with gifts and abilities for his glory and the building of his church. And the calling on your life is to use those in the context of the local church for his glory. You have gifts. You've been wired. Christ has bestowed upon you gifts to be used for his glory 
in the church. Um, I went to Disneyland two weeks ago and Disney is just incredible. I was blown away. They think of everything. Uh, we, we sat down on our way out to just watch a parade. I'm, my daughter and I are sitting on the curb eating some popcorn and I, I dropped popcorn within seconds. Guy with a broom is like, let me get that popcorn for you, sir. <laughs> are you kidding me? And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, a marching band comes out and starts playing like three feet from my face. It was actually a little awkward. Check my Instagram. But, <laughs> but listen, Disney is a place where they think of every single, it blew my mind, like thousands and thousands and thousands of people walking, every single one of them with their little agenda, their little map, their little iPhone app, all getting what they can out of the day, waiting in lines for hours, not really talking to each other, just looking to get what they can out of the day, leaving with the most magical experience in the world. Disneyland has figured out how to nail that. That's not what church is though. Church isn't Disneyland. Church is the opposite of Disneyland. <laughs> Listen to me. Church is where you come to be used, not to be entertained. Church is where you come to be something for someone else. If all you're doing here is coming and sitting a couple weeks, a month in a service, you're missing what God has for you. The beauty of church is in serving others with the gifts God has wired you with. Don't turn church into Disneyland. It's a miserable Disneyland. Go to Disney, we live an hour from there. Come here looking to bless others and find that you will be blessed in doing that and watch how God creates unity. But one of the things that I think keeps us from engaging in the work of the church, that keeps us sidelined, is that we think to ourselves, well, there's certain gifts that are really useful in church, but I don't preach or play guitar. I'm not really good at any church stuff. But listen to me, I, uh, I recently went and saw the Avengers movie I'm just hitting all the hot topics here, Disney Avengers. Um, saved it all for the end. Uh, one scene that I never saw in Avengers that I half expected to see was a scene where uh, maybe all the Avengers are sitting, sitting around and Captain America looks at all the other Avengers and he's like, you know, uh, Tony, Hulk, Thor, I just, I, I just don't, I'm not sure I'm that useful to you guys anymore. I mean, Tony, Iron Man, you can shoot fireballs out of your hands. You can fly, you got these magic boots and all sorts of awesome stuff. Thor, uh, you're the thunder, you're a demigod. You you turn into a thunder god, like that's incredible. Uh, uh, Hulk, you can turn into a rage monster. What do I have, Captain America? What do I have? I have like a, you know what I have? A really strong moral compass and good leadership abilities. And, and, And I'm strong. You know why that never happened in the Avengers movie? Because it was never about them. It was about the mission. They were never focused on comparing their skills or their abilities or what was useful or more useful or not useful or where they ranked in the Avengers spectrum. They were focused on a mission that was at hand. And that was all that mattered was completing the mission. That is the church. All that matters is the mission. And the mission is the manifold wisdom of God being displayed to the nations. And you know that how that happens? That happens when you get involved. That doesn't happen when six people do all of the work. That happens when we come together and we say, praise Jesus, I was lost, but I'm found. I was purposeless, but I have purpose. I was confused and I have clarity. I was stuck in addiction and Jesus pulled me out of it. I 
found the one I love. I've rewired the center of my life and it's Jesus Christ and I'm living out of that reality. And so at the church, how can I serve? How can I pour out? How can I be a blessing? Away from church when I'm scattered, how can my vocation be leveraged for the glory of God? I'm not an actress that happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian actress. I'm not a businessman that happens to believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus and do business. The main thing about me is my faith and the mission that God has given me. That's where the church starts looking like manifold wisdom on display. That's where the world starts going, wow. So a challenge this morning, don't just sit in seats here. I just, I encourage you, if all you wanna do is come here once or twice a month, just go to Disneyland. It's more fun. But if you're looking for something real, if you're looking for significance, if you're looking for meaning, if you're looking for something to give yourself to that outlasts this little ticker in your chest called a heart and goes beyond you, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Get involved. There's tons of ways you can do this. Do it for the glory of God, for his manifold wisdom, to push back on the dark punch Satan in the face and say, not today. Let's pray. Jesus, only you can create a unified church. I can't do it through preaching a sermon. We can't do it through holding services and community service projects. The church is your work. So do it now. Speak to hearts by your spirit. Do something real here at Story City, something lasting, something significant. Encourage us now, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.